ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A crisis often needs a, a big idea, something clever enough to cut through awkward complexities. Let's, let's look at the housing crisis. And the word crisis makes it sound like some sudden apparition. The reality is complex and possibly a thing that has slowly evolved. Housing, well, the problems with housing, well, they feel like a perennial problem and, and maybe a feature rather than a bug. Uh, there are many intersecting issues at play. There's shortages in housing supply, labour, materials, NIMBYs, tax breaks for real estate investors, an inflated property market. A nation still wedded to the idea of home ownership and the the single house and, and the investment in housing. And that's, that's the thing that perhaps underpins it all, that notion of the home as, as a commodity. Maybe what we need is the aforementioned big idea. <laughs> so what's, what's to be done? Uh, Professor Philip Goad is Chair of Architecture at the University of Melbourne, uh, Co-Director of the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage. And he kindly joins us now to, to help us think this through. Philip, welcome. Thank you. Uh, to begin, that, 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 that sketch of the issues, I mean, your sense of this, this current crisis, what, what's involved in it and what, what are its origins? The, the origins are complex. Clearly, there's a global difficulty in supplying materials. And Australia, as its population has grown, has always needed extra labour. And it's almost as if COVID was an unfortunate, if you like, stopping moment for industry proceeding as usual. And what it's meant is that we have a labour shortage, we have material shortages, and also to the an extraordinary escalation of land value. So affordability of housing is now, at a, one would argue, a, a crisis point. That's the thing, of course, all, all of which has a bit of a long arc. I mean, you mentioned COVID. Yes. I mean, our sense is that this is the thing which has been exacerbated by that period, but it's there's a lot of pre, pre-existing conditions that have led to this point. Yes. And uh, look, one, one of the aspects is the extraordinary sprawl of our cities and the fact that land release is still happening, but it means that the galloping sprawl of our cities isn't actually uh, keeping up with the need for uh, transport infrastructure, community infrastructure like schools and childcare centres and the like as well. And all of a sudden, I think Australia is realising that many people want to be able to walk to work or walk their kids to school. And the physical geography of our cities is now making that very difficult to achieve. There have been echoes of this before, though, in Australia's history. Because, of course, your interest is, of course, architectural history. Um, mm. I, I wonder, can, can you describe for us the parallels between our, our current situation and, and that of the post-war period? Yes, the, the, I think there's an uncanny uh, resemblance between what's happening now and what happened immediately after World War II, where because of the war, there was an extraordinary housing shortage, but there were material shortages and labour shortages. Plus, government was intent in upgrading its pretty terrible infrastructure after World War II. So water, power, 
um, the generation of electricity became extremely important and the need to actually populate many regional areas of Australia. So one of the solutions, and it was a solution that government had to find rather than the private sector, government, government decided, look, uh, we have to produce housing at great numbers and it instituted a whole series of prefabrication house schemes, some of them developed by from timber fact, pre-cut uh, houses in timber factories in Australia, but an extraordinary also importation of thousands of houses from uh, Great Britain, Austria, Italy, uh, Sweden as well. Because, as you say, we were a, a place undergoing transformative growth and change. That's right. And and just on our own terms, unable to keep up with that demand. So that I mean, and, and that feels that feels resonant. It it does. And the the other I think difference is that you also had state based housing commissions also responsible for providing affordable housing. Um, for uh, low, lower income Australians. And it too had to grapple with the fact of housing supply. And some commissions, like in South Australia, but particularly here in Victoria, uh, it developed uh, its own factory to produce prefabricated timber, but also uh, prefabricated concrete houses. And the the difference, though, is that the densities were based on a suburban vision of what housing might look like. Yes, yes, and that, yes, and so in the seeds of our future future problems. <laughs> that's right. And so, so now, what I think we have is we don't have those state housing commissions. So private developers are being encouraged to provide percentages of affordable housing in their inner city and middle ring suburbs where they're building medium density housing but it might be that they're not providing enough affordable housing and, and, and given the way that this is framed as a crisis and given that you know the reality that we have thousands of people without roofs and without the prospect of, of securing the, the why we don't um, consider this this issue of, of, of prefabrication is a strange thing. I mean, tell us, tell us about Operation Snail. Well, Operation Snail was the brainchild of a controversial politician, uh, Colonel Kent Hughes, uh, or Billy Kent Hughes, and he uh, devised this scheme for attracting about a thousand British migrants out to a, to Victoria for the to to work on the Victorian railways, and it was called Operation Snail because. The prefabricated house was a pre-cut timber house with Swedish timber cut in Nottingham, and then it, it was marketed as coming on the backs on the same ships as the migrants. So homes on their backs, hence snails have homes on their backs. And it was largely successful, uh, and it provided housing for railway workers in Melbourne, in places like Albion and Sunshine, but also many, many houses for Eildon, for the State Rivers and Water Supply Commission, the new lake and uh, water supply at Eildon, and also the Kiwa Valley Hydroelectric Power Scheme, uh, housing for the township of Mount Beauty. And it 
it was successful. Um, there were housing housings also for Newborough in the in Gippsland in the Latrobe Valley for the the new power stations down there too, but it was controversial in that local councils and also other people in the Victorian government didn't necessarily approve necessarily approved and. Unions were also ambivalent about this as well because there was the threat of conventional building practices being lessened in importance. So the houses were were small, modest, well-designed houses. And, you know, know, in the space of about four years, about 5,000 houses were built. That's a lot. So so that that was a radical government-led solution and there were many other prefabrication housing schemes. But at a certain point, by about 50, 1954, private industry took back up the reins, private sector of the building industry, and it was only the Housing Commission of Victoria and Victoria that, that persisted with the idea of prefabrication and then started to developing the high-rise precast panel towers, which have since been vilified but have proved themselves to be extraordinarily visionary in keeping affordable housing within the inner city ring of Melbourne. Yes, and then and, and creating community and all sorts of other desirable aspects too to those those towers in the, in the modern setting. Exactly, exactly. Prefabrication in the 1940s was one thing. Uh, prefabrication now is potentially entirely another. The internet is full of, of, of captivating videos of 3D printed housing. Um, the you know, flat packing is is part of the way that we live. I, I would be very surprised if modern sciences of prefabrication couldn't do extraordinary things to to quickly supplement our housing stock. Well, it is happening in Australia, and it's happening in Queensland. So their public works department is doing exactly that. It has assisted funding a prefabricated housing scheme with other private manufacturers and it's doing it successfully and with the advocacy of the architecture profession in Queensland. So that there is a model out there. I don't think it's got enough traction or publicity to see showing how successful it can be. And it's for regional locations. It's different when you get into the cities, the idea of prefabrication, but for a, for a very large state like Queensland and the um, the need to provide housing for, dare I say it, the, the uh, industries of extraction, it's, it's a solution. Why is it different in the city? Well, I think the city, our cities do require different densities. They, 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 and one way of actually stopping Australian cities sprawling on indefinitely because transport infrastructure cannot keep up is that our middle and outer rings of suburbs will need a sophisticated medium-density housing stock and at the moment we don't have a prefabricated system of building in Australia at the very least that can deal with four to five storeys of prefabricated medium-density housing. I think Europe is, is better advanced. Countries like Japan are, are better advanced. But we need a, a building industry, uh, the unions and government to come together to find, I think, a, a clever solution. Yeah, as, as you say, there are, there are um, international examples that we could draw on. And I wonder, too, if, if one of the fundamental things that needs to happen here is a 
a more robust intervention by the state in these processes. I mean, that that's the distinguishing feature of what happened after the war. This was the the golden period of of government activity and intervention, which has been somewhat muted by the, the yes. period of neoliberalism subsequently. No, you, you're spot on. And remarkably, Kent Hughes doing Operation Snail in Victoria, he was on the conservative side of politics, but he got the thumbs up from uh, federal labour to borrow the money and do it. And then government changed uh, with the Menzies era. And in some respects, it's a political history which we need to sort of open up to see well, what were the lessons that, that could be taken from that period, what worked and what didn't to go forward, I think. And, and that basic idea of Operation Snail, of, of the new arrival bringing their accommodation with them, that cuts through the, 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 the catch-22 that we're confronting in, in housing in this country currently, that we need more workers to come to solve some of the issues around labour and, and, and supply and so forth, but those new workers will in turn require housing themselves, only exacerbating the problem they're here to solve. Correct. Um, bringing the house with you would help. <laughs> it would. And I, I think we should think seriously about it, in particularly in terms of regional Australia, where you have country towns that have fabulous amenity, great schools, great community infrastructure and can afford to grow. I think the, the, it's the larger cities. We, we need to actually think cleverly about regional Australia where there are so many fantastic benefits uh, in terms of raising families and the like and that that's where labour is desperately required and why not think about either developing our own prefabricated uh, house factories here or importing some clever environmentally responsible way of getting them here uh, with the la labor with the, the labor force bringing their houses with them do we need you know big scale rethinking here I mean is, is it possible uh, for a fundamentally market-based solution to, to grapple with this issue of our, our housing crisis or does it need serious and we've seen things, you know, towards this in, in National Cabinet and signs of intent from our governments, but does it need a more serious um, state intervention? Uh, I think it does. It needs state intervention to actually be prepared to grapple with the private sector in terms of how to build things and also to how to actually manage the release of land so that when land is developed by the private sector, there is adequate land made available for affordable housing that the government can step in. And that requires legislation. You know, we can theorise about it, but it really requires, as you say, the state stepping in, making big decisions and in the long term so that young people can actually look forward to a more secure way of thinking about where they're going to live. And the spirit of Operation Snail needs to, to move in the land. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, that, of course, that was the irony, you know, Operation Snail, but it, but it actually moved very, very quickly. <laughs> On that note, Philip, <laughs> a lovely spot to wish to end. Thank you so much. And... and, and Yes, a, a big crisis needs big big changes in thinking to, to, to move towards solutions. Yes, and look, I think the example in Queensland uh, needs to get more airtime 
I think, because some states are trying to deal with it. There have been disasters, of course, in terms of thinking about prefabrication in Indigenous communities. Um, but as you say, you know, internationally, online and the like, there are scores of small house possibilities. And we just need to, I think, be content with less in terms of the houses that we expect for the future, in terms of less accommodation per family. Big things to swallow, but if we're to... Yes. Clearly what we have currently is is not meeting our needs. Philip, thank you no. so much. Thank you for that. Sure. Professor Philip Goad, uh, Chair of Architecture at the University of Melbourne, uh, Co-Director of the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 